We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood, and it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. Verse 9, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given given of his Son. And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we seek anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning, a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is, there is sin not leading to death. Verse 18, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding, that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, and in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. I'm going to ask uh, Pastor Scott if he'll come and share the word of God with us. He always gives us a very healthy uh, size portion. So uh, be ready to have your spiritual digestion system filled 
All right, brother, please come. I'm very sad that he turned the heat on. People stay awake much better when they're cold, and and now he just killed it. So it is so nice to have, to be here uh, with all of you. Uh, we enjoy every time we come. We're encouraged by you, blessed by you, blessed by your pastor and his his family, and uh, thank you for your faithful, consistent, sacrificial support of us and our ministry uh, over these years, and um, we're glad to be here today with you. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. Our world has changed since COVID. I don't have to convince anyone of that, certainly not you. Our world has changed, and uh, in many ways not for the better. We're going to read chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 23 this morning. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure it? If you're sinning, you know, you deserve it. But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For, now he's talking about doing good in the face of suffering. That's kind of where he's moving in his thinking. For to this, to what? Doing good in suffering and enduring it and pleasing God in all of it. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And as he considers the suffering of Christ, he, he just can't help but move into the next little section. Verse 24, speaking of the cross, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So we'll talk this morning about suffering for Christ. A Christian police officer's promotion is held up because he will not allow himself to be corrupted. An executive sees younger, less qualified men rise the corporate ladder past him because as a Christian, he refuses to offer his visiting out-of-town clients the kinds of sensual pleasures they enjoy. So people are passing him and he stands still. A Christian factory worker is pressured by his union steward because his speed and competence on the job reduces the opportunity for overtime for other workers. I've seen this happen. Slow down. Because you're reckoned for the rest of us. Be a good worker. Punching in and working your heart out while you're here is bad policy. If you're a Christian, that's bad. A 13-year-old boy is berated. A 13-year-old boy is, and we've heard these stories recently, is berated and belittled before his classmates by one of his teachers. Because like his Christian parents, he believes there are only two genders. Male and female. A Christian coach in a public high school is suspended. Suspended because she refuses to allow a transgender female, a biological male, a transgender female to join her girls' swim team. You're suspended and probably be fired. And we also know that in Hollywood and with the media and so forth, Christians are viewed as idiots. Pastors are universally represented as buffoons, 
bigots, hypocrites, and so forth, and we all know it. You know, the bottom line is, being a dedicated Christian now, since COVID and all that's occurred in that period of time, being a dedicated Christian now is going to start costing us. I used to say as a pastor, I pastored for 19 years, and then I was an assistant pastor before that, and I've said in looking at texts like this and preaching from texts like this, and your pastor's probably done something similar, I used to say, folks, as we look at this, standing for Christ in a sinful world and being persecuted for it, as we look at this kind of a topic, we know believers, we know of believers around the world who are suffering for Christ, suffering because of the cause of Christ. And we used to say, and that time is not yet here, but it's coming. Right? We used to say that. I don't know if you have said that. It's not here yet, but it's coming. Well, guess what? It's here now. If we're going to stand for Christ in this present culture, I mean, really stand for Christ, not be a closet believer, uh, we're going to face some repercussions in many cases. So First Peter's talking about that, and of course that's one of the major themes of this book, believers being persecuted for their faith and how they should handle that. In verses 21 through 23, Peter assumes that we Christians will suffer for our faith. And then he tells us how to do it. Okay, you're going to do it. This is part of living the Christian life. This is part of following Christ. Let me tell you something of what's what you should do, how you should handle it. Bottom line is, from this text, we see that we are called to suffer like Christ. And because of that, we should suffer. Uh, that when we're suffering for Christ, we should suffer like Christ. Christ. He's the example here. When you're suffering for Christ, for the cause of Christ, suffer like he did. And we'll see that in this text. Let's pray and we'll look deeply into this text this morning. Thank you, Father, for your grace and kindness and mercy. We have so much. None of the good that we possess materially or spiritually, do we deserve. We are sinners. In our natural state, we deserve your wrath. But in your grace and kindness and for your own purposes, you have called us into your family, made us yours, made us followers of the Christ. And as followers of the Messiah, if we truly are believers, if we truly are followers, disciples of the Messiah, it will change the way we live. We will live for him. And if that's true, like our Savior, we'll face the ire of others, the anger, the mistreatment of others. And Father, help us to know that in the world that we live in now, this is just going to be what we face. And help us to purpose, if we haven't already purposed to do this, help us today to purpose in our hearts, I will stand for Christ come what may. I will please him no matter what I'm accused of, no matter how I'm treated, and I'll lift him up in this world regardless of 
what the ramifications are for me personally. Use this text, Father, to encourage us. This day we pray in our Savior's name. Amen. In verse 21, we're told very plainly that when we're suffering for the cause of Christ, our focus must be Christ. Let's quickly examine verse 21. And, and note, Peter says a number of things about uh, regarding this. First of all, he says that we are called to suffer. Verse 21, for this, doing good and suffering for it, to this you've been called. Now, there are a number of things that, that Peter states in this book regarding our Christian calling. He states that we've been called to a number of things. He says in chapter 2, verse 9, we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we're thrilled about that. Been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. In chapter 3, verse 9, he says we've been called to return blessing for cursing. In chapter 5, verse 10, he says we've been called to God's eternal glory in Christ. So we've been called to a number of things. And one of those things we've been called to is suffering. One author says this, and he's right on the money. He says the verb called looks back to the time of the reader's conversion and implies that God himself acted in calling them to such a life. So the idea is this. At that moment in time when God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, at that point in time when God opened your blind eyes, gave you life, and you trusted Christ, at that very moment, he not only called you out of darkness, but at that point he called you to suffer for him. It wasn't like this is a new development. Oh, now, at this point in history, God's added something to the deal. Before it was just called from darkness to light. Now he's added something to this. And I wasn't expecting it, didn't know it was coming, don't really like it. I'm called now to suffer. This isn't cool. No, this is always part of the calling. Embedded in the call to Christ is the call to follow him, come what may, and to face the, uh, the treatment, mistreatment of others for the sake of Christ. We've been called to this, folks. It's not a surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise. It can't be a surprise. The author goes on to say, in calling them to himself in conversion and then to suffer, he gave them a new dignity to suffer as his people. You're not just suffering for any old reason. You're suffering as his people, as followers of Christ, and a new motivation to follow the example of their Messiah. New Testament speaks of this calling to suffer often. I'm going to read a few passages because I want it to be crystal clear. It's not like this is the only text that references that. The Bible over and over states in different ways, you have been called to follow Christ and to suffer for him in that following of him. Uh, Jesus says in John 15, these are texts that you all know, I'm sure. John 15, 18 through 20, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will do what? Persecute you. If they persecute me and they did unto death, don't expect anything else from the world regarding your life. First Thessalonians 3, 2 through 4. Paul says, We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. This is why Timothy was there. That no one... Be moved by these afflictions for the cause of Christ, 
For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Oh, don't you know that the afflictions being faced for Christ, we're destined for this. That's another way of saying called. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, Paul says, uh, I, I didn't uh, cover this up. When I was with you, I told you this. And now you know. Because you've seen it come to pass. In my life, Paul's life, and in the lives of others, this was no secret. I wasn't hiding this from you. Don't tell them. They're going to suffer for Christ. Let's keep that on the down low. No, that wasn't it. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 10-12, You, however, have followed my teaching. You followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. You followed me in all these areas. My persecutions and sufferings. That happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You followed me in all these things, and you knew this was part of the package. 1 Peter 5, further on in the book that we're in. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, a text I know you probably have memorized, some of you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, to chew up and spit out, as it were. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We're not alone. You, You should never think, I'm suffering in my workplace or in this situation or this relationship. I stood for Christ. I reached out to people with the gospel. I lived a holy life in front of these people, and I'm suffering for it, and I'm the only one. No, there's a brotherhood out there. There are believers all around the world, across the globe, who are suffering for Christ. India, northeast India, a place where I've been, my wife and I have been there, we know people. I picture people's faces. 400 churches in the, uh, over the past two months, three months, 400 churches have been destroyed. I mean destroyed. Like you can't find them. It's just a shell of maybe the foundations. They're gone. 400 churches, Christian churches, not just Christian, but Christian churches, true believers. Believers have been killed, displaced, left running away, finding a place, a way to survive, and many of them killed. The authorities come into the house and they say, we're going to come back in a week. And if when we come back, all these Christian symbols are gone and Hindu Christian, uh, sorry, Hindu Christian, and Hindu uh, um, uh, things are set up in its place. And it's, if it's not clear that you are worshiping in, uh, 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 you know, in, in a Hindu way, in a Hindu way, You'll either be gone from this place or you'll be killed. This is happening in India right now. Well, we're part of a brotherhood. By the way, I re- even though I know and I've just said, we're going to face trials now the way we never have for the cause of Christ in this world, in this culture, in, this, in, in America. We're still not going to face it the way other believers are facing persecution. I don't think anyone's going to come, at least at this point, come into your house and tell you to get rid of your Bible and so forth. And if you don't, in a week, we're going to kill you. 
That's not happened yet. I'm not saying that won't happen. We're, st- we're seeing the beginnings of it. But when you're facing repercussions for your Christian stand, don't let yourself slip into, woe is me. Slip rather into the thought of, there's a brotherhood of believers who are facing a whole lot more than I have and probably ever will. And if they can stand for Christ in their world, I certainly can stand for Christ in this world. So first of all, Peter says, we've been called to this. This is part of the Christian calling. Secondly, Peter tells us why we've been called to suffer. He says, because Christ also suffered you, gives us the reason why. In other words, suffering was part of the life of Christ, and now it is part of our life as well. It is simply part of following him, because Christ also suffered for you. Now notice what he says here exactly. He doesn't say Christ, he doesn't say, because Christ also died for you. Now he does reference that. Uh, beginning in verse 24, he bore our sins on his body on the tree. He can't help but go there. But here he doesn't say died for you, for us. Because he did more than die for us. He uses a broader term, suffering. His point is that all of the earthly trials that Jesus faced, all the ridicule, all the false accusations and humiliations, all the enticements of Satan, and all the pain following his arrest and culminating in his brutal and excruciating murder on the cross, all of that, we suffer for him because he bore all of that. Not simply the cross, which is a terrible thing to say. Not simply the cross, but all of it. He suffered all of it culminating in the cross for me and for you. He didn't just die for us. He suffered all of that for us. Christ's sufferings really should be one of the greatest motivations for our suffering for him. Remembering all that he went through should certainly leave us thinking, my goodness, this is the least I can do for him. Thirdly, Peter states that By his suffering, Christ left us an example. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This word example is such an interesting term. It it literally speaks of taking a piece of paper, putting it on top of another piece of paper to trace out that bottom piece of paper. In fact, it was, it was, this is a word used, um, uh, of students, children learning the alphabet in the Greek culture. So, they're learning the, the Greek alphabet, and a given letter, or maybe the entire alphabet, is on the page. Take another page, put it on top, trace it, and they would learn the alphabet that way. I have a great memory when I, of some things when I was a kid. My Aunt Harriet lived a few miles from our house. Now, when you think of an Aunt Harriet, she's the quintessential this tall, I mean, weighed nothing, and so sweet and so kind and so hospitable. I would go over to her house, 11, 12 years old, and I'd mow her yard sometimes. She had an old reel mower. Y'all know what a reel mower is? Some of you, some of you don't. There's no gas. You're the gas. You're just pushing it, and it just does this. And if the blades are sharp, and if the, ga- if the grass isn't too thick or too high, you can mow along that way. It's great. 
And, you know, she, she was smart. Don't give this kid something gas-powered. You know, just let him push the reel mower. So I would mow her lawn. I'm not sure if I ever got the whole thing mowed. I was a kid, and, you know, just a normal kid. And I'd go into her house, and she had the best chocolate chip cookies you've ever had in your life. And then she had tracing paper. I'm not sure they have this anymore. Real thin paper. They used to call it tracing paper. And she had, like, coloring books, Batman and Robin, you know, Bam, Socko, all that other stuff, and the Joker and the Riddler. And I, she'd take, we'd take tracing paper, and I'd take um, some pins and pin down the corner on top of this thing and trace out Batman and Robin and the Joker and all the rest of it. I would leave stomach full of cookies and a handful of this tracing paper. That's the picture. Not the cookies, though that's a wonderful picture too. But that's the picture in this text, folks. Wear the tracing paper. That's the idea. Wear the tracing paper. And Jesus Christ is the pattern to be traced. When we're suffering, we're responsible to trace him out line by line, feature by feature. How would he respond? We're called to think, act, and speak in the same way he would respond if he was in this same pressured, stressful situation of persecution. We are to trace him out. That's the idea of this term, example. Peter elaborates further on this same idea, telling us the purpose of Christ's example, so that we might follow in his steps. Now, that word follow is interesting. It's a compound term. It means to follow after closely. It means to be in lockstep behind. It, it's not kind of a, uh, yeah, I see him up there, and I'm following. It's not that. It's I'm right behind him, watching every step and mimicking every step. So when we're suffering, we're tracing him out, doing just what he would do, and we're as if we're watching every step, we're following him that closely. Folks, the quality of our discipleship, the quality of our discipleship or of our, of our following him will be manifested greatly in how we handle trials and suffering. Well, I'm a disciple. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't, I don't want to suffer for him, and I'm not going to do what he would do, but I'm a disciple. No, you're not. Following him means mimicking him and how he handled suffering. So now the question question remains, how did Jesus respond to suffering? That's where we're going here. That's where Peter's going here. What pattern did he leave us to trace? And what path did he leave us to follow? Peter describes Christ's pattern and path now in verses 22 and 23. So now we know who we are, what we're supposed to do, how do we do it now? How do we follow him? How do we mimic him? First, our suffering should always be undeserved. Verse 22. He committed no sin. If anyone knew the quality of Jesus' life, it was Peter. He lived with him, watched him every, every day for those years. So I heard every word, saw every action. He knows that Jesus Christ was absolutely and utterly sinless. Theologians speak of the impeccability of Christ. The fact that 
in regard to sin, our Savior was faultless, flawless, spotless, unblemished, untarnished, irreproachable. He could not sin and did not sin. Uh, the biblical text speaks of this over and over. Second Corinthians chapter 5 speaks of Christ as the one who knew no sin. Hebrews 4, speaking of Christ as our high priest, says he's the one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. First John 3, 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there was no sin. Now, why does he bring this up in the first place? Because he wants to make it clear that Jesus Christ, in all of his sufferings, didn't deserve any of it. That's the bottom line point. He was sinless. You and I sin. He never did. Every word was perfect, perfectly formed, perfectly placed. Every action was absolutely just right. He treated people perfectly. There was never a crossing of a line. No transgressions. And so all of his suffering was absolutely undeserved. Every thought, motive, word, action was pure. So this is the first point for me and you. When we're suffering, let's make sure our suffering is not deserved. This is something we need to ponder, I think. I, I've known professing Christians who are avoided and mistreated by unsaved people, not because they're godly, but because they're ungodly. It's one thing if people avoid you or don't like you or persecute you, mistreat you, because you're godly and like Christ, then you're convicting in your life. They see Christ in your life and they're convicted by that holiness and they don't much like it. That's one thing. That's exactly what we're hoping for. And then as they're convicted, we're hoping for an opportunity to voice to them, to communicate with them Christ and forgiveness for the sins that they're being convicted about. That's what we're hoping for. But often, I fear that we are mistreated because we're not holy. I know of professing Christians who use Christ as an excuse for being judgmental, condescending, and unkind. Sometimes we could be that way. I'm this, you're that. I know some Christians who are complainers, busybodies, and gossips. If you want to know anything about anything, talk to her or him, because they're the local gossip and they know everything. And they love to chew people up and spit them out. They gain some fun in that. They somehow know everything. They're, they have really big ears, and they hear it all. And then they utilize it, and they love talking about other people in negative ways. There are professing Christians who are just like that. I hope, I hope it, there are none like that in this room. There usually is in a, a room this size. And unbelievers note that person. They know. They know that that's ungodly. And they'll avoid that person because they're that kind of person. I know of others who, in the name of Christian liberty, think, value, speak, and act just like unbelievers. And uh, real unbelievers know you shouldn't be acting that way. You claim to be a Christian and you use that kind of language. 
You listened to that joke? You told that joke? This is your value system? Isn't that kind of inconsistent with, with what you, with Christianity? From what I know of Christianity, this doesn't fit. But there's some who in the name of Christian liberty will simply morph into whatever they have to, to fit in. And the unbelievers often see the hypocrisy. I know of believers, I could think of a number of believers, professing believers, I'll say, who live their lives in a defeated and depressed kind of a woe is me state. Very deflated. I can think of, I can name a couple right now. From my church, our church in Illinois, and in more recent history. They wallow in life's hardships. When you walk up to that, if you see that person coming down the hall towards you, and you say, how's it going? Oh, it's been another one of those weeks. And if you stand there long enough, you're going to hear about the whole week. Oh, you don't want to know. Oh, let me tell you. And they'll tell you. We're all facing life, right? We're all facing financial challenges. Every bill is up. Everything you're paying is more than you paid three years ago. We don't have to complain about that. Why complain about something we all know about? My wife is snickering because she knows. I do complain about that stuff. But why? We all know. If, if anybody ought to be able to live above this stuff, it's the believer. We shouldn't be deflated. Listen, when that person's walking towards you, what do you want to do? You know how they're going to respond, right? What, do you, what are you looking for? You're looking for a door to jump into. We're going to go to the restroom. You want to avoid that person because you don't want to stand there for 10 minutes hearing, oh, this week, let me tell you what happened. That kind of person is avoided and spoken of negatively because not because of their holiness, but because they're not joyful people. Listen, if anyone can be joyful in, in life, whatever it throws at them, whatever, whatever in God's sovereign plan will come, the believer should be joyful. We have Christ. We have the, the word of God that guides us and gives us wisdom in all those intricate turns of life. And we know the ultimate future. Life may not get better here, but this is the worst it's ever going to be for us. And heaven is the future. So instead of being that deflated person, you be the godly person who is going through the trials and who is joyful in the midst of it. My point in all this is simply, just simply to say that some believers are mistreated because they deserve to be. And Jesus never deserved to be. Let's be like him. So when you're facing something, ask the question, do I deserve this? Am I getting this response because I love Christ and I'm living a holy life and Christ in me is being responded to this way? Or am I getting this in the face because of ungodliness? Ask that question. And then, be honest with yourself regarding the answer. And if, you, if, you, if you're blind to it, then you ask a close friend. Or someone who's not a Christian, but who's not a close friend. Maybe they're not a close friend because they don't want to hang around you because you yank them down. 
Go to that person. What is it about me that is off-putting to you? No, really tell me. I really, really want to know. Because I know I need to grow. Okay, I'll tell you. It's this. Secondly, our suffering should always generate pure responses. Verse 22. Peter realizes that our first response to anything, to a trial, for instance, is normally going to be verbal or often going to be verbal. So he addresses that. So verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So this is verbal responses. Neither did he lie, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile, again, verbal. In return, when he suffered, he did not threaten, verbal, uh, but continued entrusting himself. So he's speaking of verbal responses to trials. First of all, we never speak deceitfully. Uh, We don't lie. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. The, the older translations, I think, are pretty good here. I like it them better, like the King James. No guile was found in his mouth. The word, this word guile or deceit uh, is, a, is a term that speaks of fish bait. You know, you, you cover a, 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 a hook with something that looks inviting, a worm. And so the fish is going after the worm, but it's a lie. There's guile being utilized. This is a lie. There's a worm there, but there's more than the worm. And now you're being fried up in a skillet. That's the idea here. Deceit. When we're mistreated by others, we may be tempted to deceive in response. If I just lie a little bit, if I'm just a little deceptive, maybe I can skirt all this problem. Maybe if we misrepresent ourselves by acting like an unsaved person, we can avoid suffering. And that's probably true, by the way. Maybe we should lie about what we do on the weekends. What did you do on Sunday? I watched football. Maybe you did. Never mentioning church, never mentioning God, never mentioning that this is a day God's given for worship and rest. Maybe we should lie about what we do with our time, our entertainment, what we enjoy, what we, what our value system is. I'm not going to tell people what my value system is. I'm not going to tell them what I think is right and wrong. That's just going to get me busted. Uh, so I'm just not going to talk about that. I'll talk about something like football or some other innocuous thing. You know, Peter knows exactly what he's talking about here. No deceit. What did Peter do three times? When it came to Christ, he lied three times. So when he writes this, it's not like it's uh, theoretical for him. He lied point blank to avoid suffering for Christ. Folks, that's just not an option for us. In fact, here's the thing about Peter. He lied and lied and lied. And when he was confronted about it, what did he do? He repented. And look at the book of Acts. If you're someone who is constantly hypocritical about your Christianity, my question is, are you really a Christian? Peter couldn't live in that hypocrisy. And if you can, the question is, do you really know, are you really a follower of Christ? Also, we should never speak abusively. It says here, um, 
He, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was suffered, he did not threaten. We don't speak abusively when we're being mistreated. Christ was constantly, uh, he constantly suffered verbal abuse. His enemies called him a Samaritan, a glutton, a wine-bibber, a blasphemer, a demonic. They accused him of being in league with the devil, uh, of being a perverter of the nation, of being a deceiver of the people. Now, yes, Jesus did respond to uh, uh, those who were his detractors, and sometimes very harshly, very frankly, very severely, but he always did that with a goal of their conviction. He never responded, though, you know, um, you're full of dead men's bones. That's pretty strong. But even that, those kinds of things, he never did those things out of anger or retaliatory abuse. His responses to their threats, his goal was to see them convicted of their sin. So, folks, we... We don't respond with deception and we don't respond in angry, in anger. You know, the bottom line is, take the lumps. When you're mistreated by other people, take the lumps and respond in kindness, respond truthfully, uprightly in return. Get ready for the lumps and take them. And then respond truthfully, kindly. Lastly, our suffering should always be fueled by a God focus. I'm so so thrilled that God placed this here in this text. Verse 23. Instead of the very end. Instead of all that. Instead of lying. Instead of, of reviling or threatening in the face of all of this. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is Christ's response to all, uh, not just the cross, but his life of suffering at the hands of so many to entrust himself to God. There's a God focus here, a God the Father focus. Uh, This word entrusting is interesting. It means literally to hand over something, to deliver something. So, So it's fall. In the next couple of weeks, we're all going to have to work on our yards. So you and your wife decide this such and such a Friday, we're going to do all the yard work that we're trying to avoid, but we have to do it. And I mow the lawn, rake the leaves, either mow the leaves into the lawn, which is what the lazy men do, that's what I do, either mow the, the leaves into the lawn or rake them and bag them and put them to the road and all that stuff, whatever you do. And we got the garden. We have to pull up all this stuff. And we got the flower garden. We have to yank up all that stuff. Fill up more big paper bags and put it to the road. And so this is what you do on a Saturday. And it's 4 o'clock now. You started working at 10. You stop for a little quick something in the middle of the day, but you're starving by 4 o'clock. And what do you do? Say, a cupcake? Look, let's just get a pizza and try and finish this day, you know, alive, upright. And so you, 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 you order the pizza, and you, you're just so tired. I don't want to drive and pick that thing up. Let's just splurge and have it delivered. So you pay for it over the phone, and you wash up, and you're in the house now. The work is done. You're looking back saying, thank the Lord. He, we lived through this, and the yard is pretty much done. Ding dong. And some guy stands there with this box and that you hope has still got a hot pizza in it. And what does he do? He hands it over. You've already paid for it. It's just an exchange. Here's your pizza. 
Thank you very much. That's this word right here. To hand over. Now, not the pizza part, but the idea of handing over. Now you're all hungry. I see you all licking your chops. Handing over. Delivering. What did Jesus do with every occasion of suffering? With every person who was causing, you know, who was persecuting him? What did he do in every case? Father, this is yours. Handed it over. Father, this is yours. I trust you know what you're doing. I'm going to give this to you. You handle it in your time, in your way. You judge, if necessary, in your time, in your way. You save that person. Maybe judgment uh, is placed on Christ for this person, hopefully. And this person is met in heaven one day. But I'm giving it all to you. That's the point here. When the suffering comes, you entrust it to the Father, who you know will always do right, who will judge rightly. All the wrongs will be addressed, not by me and not by you, by God the Father, either in this life, sometime, apart from my involvement, or in the next life. It's not something you hold on to. You give it over. And then you keep following Christ. You keep tracing out that pattern. And you keep, uh, you keep yourself in lockstep. And every time something comes your way, you hand it over. And you hand it over. That's the life that we're to live in a world where we'll be mistreated for Christ. Folks, if we're going to handle suffering the right way, it is essential that we understand the fact that God is just and that he will ultimately right all wrongs. It's essential we have that in our heads. God knows what he's doing. Father knows what he's doing. I don't have to deal with this. He will in the right time and the right way. And so I'm going to give it over to him. And I'm going to keep tracing out. And I'm going to keep following. And leave all the rest to the Father. So folks, our, our world has changed. It's not on the upswing. It's the other. And, you know, it's not going to matter how the next elections go. There may be some little reprieve to some of this, depending on who's elected, and that'd be wonderful. The real solution is God providing revival. I mean, spiritual revival, political political revival, that doesn't exist. There may be the staying of a certain direction in our world, but it, it's still, it's like the stock market, unfortunately, it's just doing this. So you have to determine right now, with this text, what are you going to do? Not if um, mistreatment because of Christ comes, but when, what am I going to do? And if you look at your life and look in the mirror and say, there is no mistreatment for Christ because I don't let anyone know, that's a whole other issue. Then the issue is, do I really know Christ? Let's purpose in our hearts to trace him out and follow him, whatever comes. Thank you, Father, for this text and its clarity. Help us to be faithful followers of our Savior. Help this church, this congregation, this family, individually and as a family, to follow Christ. And that will bring some negative things. Help them always to be behind Biblical leadership. 
Father, we know that our Savior is worth, he is worth our lives and so much more. Our Savior is worthy of tracing out and following. Help us to do that. We ask these things in his name.